Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about Iggy Pop with David Frick. We're also going to talk about our Weezer story in the new issue and hear some reader mail. But first, we're going to talk about what we're listening to in the office. I'm here with Brittany Spanos. Hi. Hi. And John Dolan. <laughs> hey. Hey. The loose theme today is uh, cover songs or kind of improbable cover songs, right? <laughs> Brittany, the one you're bringing to the table is from Sturgill Simpson. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this one a little yeah. bit? Yeah. He um, did a, this incredible cover of Nirvana's In Bloom, and it's off of his upcoming album, A Sailor's Guide to Earth, that's coming out on April 15th. And he wanted to make a song for his son and that he went back to like the music that he listened to when he was 13 and sort of slowed down and made In Bloom into this like super old school country western song. Yeah, I mean, mean, let's back up for a second, maybe talk about Sturgill a little bit. I mean, he's a guy who like came out with an album 2014. A lot of people thought he was like kind of the heir to what, like Waylon Jennings Mm -hmm. or Merle Haggard, you know? I mean, he's he's like on one hand a, a real straight retro classic country guy, but also he's got like these twists, like even on the last record, Mm -hmm. he'd put in a little bit of like psychedelia or maybe like some crazy synth and you'd be like, whoa, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, maybe this isn't the record I'm going to recommend just to my uncle who likes Hank Williams, you know? Yeah. And then on this, it feels like he's kind of pushing it even further. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, it's still, it's a country cover of it, but it's also not in like a kitschy way, sort of like, I'm going to do a country cover of a Nirvana song. Like it's a very heartwarming and like slow down and very like, it's really cool. Soulful, yeah. Yeah. When he hits the chorus, it's like incredible. He's got this incredible voice in a way it's like almost anything he sings is going to sound a little bit like country, which (laughs) maybe in a way kind of gives him a little leeway. Like Mm -hmm. he can kind of do anything or do a lot more than you'd think. It's totally true. I mean, this record, I guess, is that he wanted to make a kind of a song cycle that recalled for him records like What's Going On and kind of show it to his son as a kind of guide to how to live almost. And this is the moment where he taps into sort of teen angst. He, He said something, I think, recently to us about kind of like, that's a record you listen to when you're 15. You know, Nevermind is a record you listen to when you're 15. So he wanted to find a song for Nevermind. I think he chose really brilliantly because Kurt Cobain's background was rural. He grew up in Aberdeen, Washington, and it was a kind of area where he often talked about all the hicks, all the hicks I had to deal with and stuff like that. And this, and In Bloom is the song on, on Nevermind that really kind of seems to have that kind of character. He goes around shooting his guns, and he, you know, and he's actually kind of a sad guy at heart, but he's got a lot of bravado. And so he actually sounds like he could be kind of a lost soul character in a kind of a country song. Right. What he does here, he makes it sound only, he, the singing is almost kind of like, if you imagine like 80s Randy Travis, if he was a goth or something, it's slowed <laughs> down. And it's really, you know, sort of sad and mordant, but loving to this guy. And he kind of redeems this guy, who's kind of a, a character that with Cobain is a little like maybe he holds him in kind of contempt or maybe he, like the classic Cobain character, he holds him in contempt, but he sees some of himself in him. And he's kind of trying to bring his story into the world a little bit. The song begins spare and slow. And like you say, by the end, you've got soul horns and you've got this kind mm-hmm. of rapturous thing that almost has kind of a Memphis feel explosive or kind of psychedelic soul feel a little bit. It's really one of the best cover songs I think I've heard in quite some time. It's brilliant. It's yeah. pretty pretty awesome. <laughs> um, all right. Our next cover pick, actually our next couple cover picks are from this epic project by The National who are kind of the epitome of – I guess you'd think of them as kind of like the – 
Brooklyn indie rock classicists of our right. time, right? You right. know, they're old. They're they're guys in their like you know mid late sort of early forties who have been around about fifteen years or so, making really interesting kind of dark, really richly detailed records. Um, their singer is named. There's two brothers, and then a singer, Matt Berninger, is his name, and he uh, is kind of got this. Deep baritone, kind of like very sad. Very, I drank a lot of wine, and I'm. But he's also, <laughs> also has a real sense of humor in his lyrics. He's like right. also kind of underrated for that. He, he's got. A, he's they're a very interesting band who've made great records for, for right. a while. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of people think of them like a kind of a, even though they're from originally from like Ohio, like it's yeah. like the epitome of a Brooklyn band. You know, like the quintessential yeah. Brooklyn band. <laughs> yeah, and I think when they played the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, a lot of people thought like yeah, Brooklyn. A lot of Brooklynites' heads would explode or something. It's like yeah. it's too Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't know, or something. But they've been working on this, this mammoth, like, Grateful Dead covers project. It's six hours long, and it's curated by them, and they went They've been working the, on it for five years, Yeah, with all too, their buddies, right? all yeah. great indie, a lot of, there's a lot of younger kind of inheritors of the dead, less than there are peers and things like that, which is kind of interesting. It's, you know, Jenny Lewis is on it, the, the War on Drugs are on it, all Stephen these- Malcolm Stephen Malcolmus Stephen Malcolmus, you know, all these people Bonnie who kind of- Prince Billy. Who came yeah. to, who, you know, I think grew up in the shadow of the dead, maybe not in a good way, right. but came to the dead, you know, the culture of the dead not in a good way, but came to the dead as as fans maybe a, a little later. I mean, some of them are diehard right. fans. It seems like the only rule for all, all the people on this record are just that they're kind of unlikely people to cover dead songs. Yeah. yeah, that's about it. And the national pick is Morning Dew, which is, it's a traditional folk song about a couple who go to sleep one and wake up and there's been an apocalypse and they go out into the Morning Dew and the song itself is very beautiful and it's really one of these, one of these sweet Sadly, kind of achingly majestic Jerry Garcia vocals. And by the way, sidebar, Jerry Garcia is a totally underrated singer, as I think we should definitely <laughs> bring out in this. I second that. But second he, so that. he so the character in the song turns to his I guess in the, the, the the terminology of the day, his woman, and says, like, you know, what happened? What are we gonna do? And she's like, you know, can you help me through this? And she's like, It's no, you know. Um, so they have to walk out into a new world, and though the music is Edenic, it's a post-apocalyptic, the, the theme. Um and, and they, they just kill it. They do, they really do. Okay. They really go into the darkness. He really drives into it, and the and the, the guitars kind of recall the original, but add kind of like a dissonance and sort of an apocalyptic feel that helps the song a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, his voice is really kind of the opposite of Jerry's yeah. in a way, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like it's totally perfect. He really kind of like deep well, and profound, yeah. as opposed to kind of like that struggling kind of Jerry quality and that kind of soft Jerry quality. And here you have this kind of it's very very uh, it's powerful. Yeah, he really taps into how solemn it is and how sad it is. I mean, because just like listening to Morning Dew, just the original version is sort of like, it's a little bit more like... It's got this lightness yeah, to it. Yeah, it's light. It's yeah. kind of like softer. And then once the Snake National Cup... The darkness really under it. But yeah. yeah, the music hides the kind of theme a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you can especially you think of, you know, it's one of those classic dead things where you think of, oh, Morning Dew, you know, beautiful. But like then they have a lot of songs like that <laughs> where the actual song itself is dark and there's a, there's a paradox and he they bring out the paradox in this thing. <laughs> right. Pretty, yeah. And then the other song we just couldn't help but include, even though we we mentioned a Courtney Barnett song a few episodes ago, this is Courtney Barnett doing uh, New Speedway Boogie. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, a song off Working Man's Dead, and it's the song where Jerry starts off with one of his kind of great hippie phrases. Like, please, it starts off, goes, please don't dominate the rap jack. (laughs) And and, and it's like such a great, like, you know, of its time kind of thing to say. It's like, she really sings it perfectly. The way she delivers it is like a little dry, but just no irony. Like, you know, and it's it's, it's a conversational song from, obviously, she's one of the most conversational songwriters we have right now. Everything she does is like that. Please don't dominate the rap jack if you 
she kind of turns it into like almost a garage song, yeah. which yeah. is just awesome. It lets her band yeah. kind of do some stuff too. She's got a great band, and I think we often talk about her songwriting, and we should, but like her band is great, and like the guitar, yeah. the guitar work on the song is really great, and it's you know. And live, she kicks butt. Yeah. She brings some of that energy <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, she even likes. It sounded a little bit slowed down to me, and a little bit like her voice was able to just sort of tap into that like super conversational quality a little bit more, and it yeah, just kind totally. of felt very natural and very like a little bit slowed down. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, that was our special covers edition. I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> Brittany Spanos and John Dolan, thanks for coming out. Thank, Thank you. you. And Day of the Dead is coming out this May. You can sample a few songs on YouTube right now. That was Gardenia off the new album from Iggy Pop. I'm here with David Frick, senior writer for Rolling Stone. We're excited. This is David's first time on the podcast. And John Dolan, record reviews editor and contributing editor at Rolling Stone. Thanks for coming out, guys. No sure. worries. Glad to be here. All right. We're here to talk about the great Iggy Pop, who's got a new album, Post-Pop Depression. Uh, David, you just caught up with Iggy and are writing a story about him for the magazine and the website at uh, South by Southwest. That is, in fact, the case. Uh, well, you I, saw him at South by Southwest. I saw the, I'm sorry, uh, you're not I writing s- the story at South by Southwest. No, I saw the, uh, he did two shows at the Austin City Limits uh, venue, the Moody Theater. The right. first one was a taping for later broadcast, um, and that show also was almost two hours. And I talked to a number of people who were there that previous night before I got in, and they were all just blown asunder. The, you know, and this is a guy who's played South by a lot. I saw yeah. the Stooges at Waterloo Records. Right. Um, I saw Iggy do a great show once on Sixth Avenue on the back of like a flatbed truck. <laughs> you know, just like tearing it up for the folks. You know, when Sixth Street was not, you know, just like a, a human sea of sea. crazy people yeah, right. as it can be right. now. But he just he he turned it on in a way that really surprised long-standing fans and and observers. And then the night that I was there, the second night, Wednesday, the sixteenth, March, man, he comes out in a black suit, no shirt, barefoot, and he comes out to Lust for Life. So it's like he's setting a high bar. This is like oh I'm starting from here, and then we get deep, and we get strange, and we get. Uh, provocative. But again, it was exactly 110 minutes. I counted oh my it. God. And most of the new record, barring a couple of songs, and then everything else, with the exception of Repo Man, which is a real surprise in the set, came from The Idiot and Lust for Life. And oh, I wow. think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's actually got a band. He's had a lot of good bands over the years, you know, outside the Stooges. And I've seen most of them. He's had Glenn Matlock. Right. He's had you know, all kinds of, you know, Ivan Kral was right. in his band at one point. So, you know, he always gets class guys right. to do his thing. But he's got a band, you know, with Josh of Queens of the Stone Age running the ship. He's got Matt from the Arctic Monkeys on drums. Right. Uh, Matt Sweeney, who's played with Corgan, Chavez, all kinds of people. Former publicist for Nasty Little and Man. Former, and, former and publicist. Rick Rubin, uh, sideman, yeah. Right. And Dean Fertitta from right. Queens and the Tours, Troy Van Leeuwen from... Queens, and this is a band that can actually not just replicate but enhance and actually strengthen in a live context those dark industrial textures of the Berlin records that Iggy made with Bowie. So this right. is really the first band that's been able to do justice right. to that sound. I've got 
the live album. I saw that first tour he did with Bowie. Right. On the, in the wake of those records, and it was a good band. Right. But this is really the first one that's been able to recreate and then strengthen and really escalate and accelerate those textures. Well, let's yeah. Let, I mean, let's so, talk about that you know, band. It's, and, yeah. it's, it's an amazing band, and and. You can tell that, you know, for someone who swears this is his last record and has questions about what he wants to do next, you know, physically what he can do, creatively what's left to do in that venue, in that, in that milieu, um, he's, he found a band that could really push him right. as well as he pushing them. You know, one of the things he said was that as a performer, he's, he's essentially an intermediary. He's the guy who's between, as he put it, them, he gestured as if to the back of his band and them gestures to the front. He's the guy in the center. The, the metaphor he used was, I'm like those devices you use as adapters to adapt your electronic gizmos in Korea. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy who fixes the voltage. Maybe the first and time that metaphor has ever been used for well, Bob, but yeah, but that's cool true, that he man. sees he, himself that way. He sees himself as yeah. the guy who's, as, he's the guy at the center who's right. actually translating that energy from the music to the audience and back. He did it with the Stooges in all of their lineups, and he's doing it again because that's what he does best. He's he's the channel. Well, let, I mean, let's talk about this album because, I mean, he's got Josh Homme from the Queens of the Stone Age, and, and he produced this album with him, and it definitely does, like, evoke those late 70s records. I mean, that definitely seems like one of the real inspirations for it. I'm not sure it was a specific inspiration, a but one of the things that I, I asked him I, when I talked to him after the show, we spoke for almost an hour backstage, you know, 20 minutes after the gig, he's sitting down talking to me, he's in a t-shirt, just loose pants, barefoot, uh, really so relaxed. So dressed up for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. He, he, dresses, he dresses up for the gig and down for the interview. But the whole collaboration started by him exchanging these text messages with Josh about writing together because, you know, right. they knew each other and had been in touch on other stuff. So, you know, it's part of the same circle. But one of the things that kind of became clear, and I, I sort of asked him this, was that by coming to the end of the Stooges, you know, that was a decade-long reunion with both incarnations. And then, you know, after Ron Ashton died in 2009, you know, then he brings in James Williamson and he right. does the raw power thing. But I think with Scott Ashton's death in 2014. For, just let me, let me back up for oh, a minute. Just for people at home who might not know, you know, he reformed the Stooges in like, reformed, it was the mid 2000s. He reformed them in 2003. Right. With um, the original guitarist Ron Ashton and his brother Scott on drums and Mike Watt on bass because Dave Alexander, the original bass player, had died back right. in the 70s. When Ron died in 2009, Iggy brought back James Williamson, who had been actually Ron's replacement on guitar for the raw power period, and right. Ron had moved to bass. Who had been a business executive, he, I think, he had for been a, he, had yeah. been a tech, he had been a tech guy tech at guy, Sony. Yeah. He had been a very, you know, elevated executive, really, uh, you know, advanced technology stuff. Right. He came back to play guitar, so it was James, Mike Watt, and Scott Ashton again. But when Scott died... In 2014, I think that basically ended the Stooges for him. Right. You, you couldn't. And he said he that to you. He, ba yeah. ba one of the things he said, I said, there are no Stooges songs in the current set. And he said, look, I can't play those songs without Ron. Right. You know, those are his riffs. Right. His sensibility. All that stuff from, from the Stooges and Funhouse records. I want to be your dog. Now I want to be your dog. Now I want to. 1970. 
little doll. Right. Don't expect those. The, yeah. You, yeah. They're they're right. not. You know, he may do those if he goes out and does like a greatest hits thing at a festival. You know, he's got another band as, with as he calls them the two Kevins. And, you know, he says, yeah, I could probably do that. You know, people need some hits, but this is a different thing. And I wouldn't play those songs in this kind of a context without Ron. Right. And so I think really the Stooges is kind of a done deal. But in bringing the Stooges back for 10 years, it was almost like having brought that cycle back, he needed to cycle ahead again. And what he did was he looked towards the Berlin period, which right. was 76 and 77, when he was there with Bowie, who had been so instrumental in trying to get Iggy clean, back in circulation as a working and recognized artist. Like they both went there kind of to they clean were, up, yeah. right? And yeah. actually, um, David had taken Iggy on tour with him when he did the uh, Station to Station tour. Iggy was there pretty much at every show. And David would encore with uh, Sister Midnight. Right. You know, which was one of the songs they had started working on. I think really what he was doing was looking back again, but forward at the same time. It's like, okay, I did the Stooges. What did I do next that mattered in his unfinished business? Well, speaking Berlin. of right. Well, speaking of Bowie, I mean, you, know, you were one of the first people to talk to him after uh, Bowie died earlier this year. You talked to Iggy. Where's his headspace now about Bowie and, and how is he relating to his memory? And, you know, Bowie was really his patron for uh, on some level. Well, one of, the things, one of the things that, that Iggy said, and I, I asked him this, I said, you know, you seem to work best with other people. You know, you always work in collaboration, whether it was the Ashton brothers or David or Josh you know, you look at the stuff he's done with Green Day. He worked with Chris Stein at Blondie. Um, he did. He does the Tibet House things with Philip Glass. You know, he read some poems that Glass scored with, you know, a string quartet. And he says, yeah, I do work better with other people. I don't need other people, but as he says, I'm willing to go out and mate, you know, to find something that <laughs> is stronger than something that maybe I would do by myself. Right. It's and, a similar metaphor to the other thing he was talking about, too. Yeah, know. it's, you know, that, it's a creation metaphor. Yeah. Right. And so I think that one of the things that we talked about, I said, well, you know, what are the associations that come to you when you're out there now with this band playing The Passenger, Lust for Life, Nightclubbing, Success, Some Weird Sin, all of those songs that are from The Idiot and Lust for Life. And he said, it, it's, he said it's a very emotional experience because he's hearing that original collaboration in a new light because Bowie isn't here. Right. You know, that that struck him. He said that one of the things, and that, you know, this is in the story, is that he was getting ready for the tour rehearsals, just doing some singing on his own at home when David passed. And he said, you know, I'm listening to, I'm doing China Girl and realizing that one of the best parts of the song is when I shut up. And China There's Girl is famously just the song that he wrote for he Bowie. Wrote with, yeah. well, he wrote with, with Bowie. With Bowie. Wrote it. And Bowie recorded it. And Bowie on, recorded uh, it and made a top 10 hit out right. of it. But he said that there's one thing on the original version on The Idiot where there's this, you know, Iggy stops singing and there's this really beautiful legato guitar line. And he said that, that was David's creation. So, you know, mm -hmm. I hear that and I hear a guy who really brought something special. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but that brought something special to what I was doing and elevated it to something else together. Look at my 
that's a collaboration that he can never have again. He can have different ones, and the one with Josh is great. I think the new album is probably one of the best solo records Iggy's ever made. But well, you can't recreate something that special. Right. What he feels is an emotional appreciation now that maybe he didn't have at the time. He knew it was good. You know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. Right. Well, John, John, how is the new album, you know, wearing in for you? How do you feel like it fits in? I'd be curious to hear more, David, about which songs you like and which songs you... Well, I, I really love it, and I really um, think it's pretty moving, actually, and I was not sure what to expect from a new Iggy Pop solo album in 2016, really what it would kind of be like, and, like, his going back to that, not, it doesn't necessarily always sound like that, but this is the kind of predatory, stripped-down kind of... Uh, slithering sort of stoicism that has been kind of a quality of those records kind of comes through a little bit, but the mood is a lot different. Like in those yeah. records, like with nightclubbing or I'm bored, it was sort of, give me something, you know, I'm at the center of this, but show me something I'm out, you know, now there's a sense, there's one song on here called Sunday where he's kind of like, I wait for Sunday. I can relax. You know, and there's other right. songs like, you know, get me out of here. Kind of like, you know, I'm really thinking about, I've seen this, this stuff happen. I've seen my friends die. You know, you just mentioned so many names, you know, and like he's he's seen his own life sort of. He's looking at his own mortality. And there's there's intimations of that on the record as well. But it's still trying to fight and find that kind of essential defiance and essential, you know, I don't know, for a cliche, raw power that is that has been such a big part of his music as well. And and the sort of also the sort of sexuality. There's the about the thing about America's greatest poet was ogling you last night in the in the hotel or you know, these kind of lines that they kind of like really balance these things or kind of almost maybe come to a kind of sense of I need to sort of close chapters, but I still am this person who feels these things. And it's a very honest album. And, a, and a, there's a real realism about kind of aging as this figure and as almost maybe as this character. Well, I it's, thought it's he, a moving I, record. Yeah, I mean, you bring that up. I thought uh, I'd be curious to hear what you had to say about this, David. I thought he kind of addressed that with American Valhalla. Kind of, that's kind of, he's talking about, like, I'm waiting for this American Valhalla and it could be about a lot of things, but one thing it seems to be he's talking about, I heard it as him talking about his place in the world. It's like there's no happy endings for him. He says at the end, all I have is my name. And in, in a way, it's like that's, he's a guy who, you know, he hasn't really done arena tours. He never got some of the recognition that a lot of like Bowie and a lot of his peers got. He's looked at in hindsight as this incredible legend like the Ramones, you know, but at the same time, a lot of his hits came sideways or with other people. He hasn't had this kind of classic rock star success that, that so many people have, especially people as important as him. did American Valhalla in Texas, he introduced it as saying that it was a song about heaven, but it was a song about asking questions about heaven, like, do we really deserve to be there? And if we get there, are we even going to like it? And I think that it's as much about looking, you know, it's, it's a song about mortality. Right. And from someone who has dodged mortality to a degree that no one would have expected. One of the things I asked him was, uh, there's this famous picture uh, that Mick Rock, uh, the photographer, oh, took I in know, 1972. It was at the about. Dorchester Hotel in London. It was some kind of Ziggy Stardust party. And, you know, Iggy is posing. He's sort of clowning there in a T-Rex T-shirt between David Bowie and Lou Reed, who was then, you know, really tight with David, the whole Transformer thing going on. And he said that actually he was there almost 
by mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was in uh, London, and uh, Dave Marsh, the writer, was there, and he said, "Man, you got to get over here. It's a big deal. You know, David's asking for you to get over here." And so Iggy just showed up, and he said, "You know, I didn't think I really even belonged in there." And yet he is the one of those three who has survived the longest. He is the last remaining original Stooge. And if you thought back then, I'm sure, I mean, he's just the guy who was like rolling in glass. Yeah. But and, he also, and and also you know, and, yeah. You can't forget that he had an enormous survival instinct. At his worst behavior, he was never, um, what's the word? He, he, was, he was never self-pitying. Right. That, you know, in all of my encounters with him and interviews and discussion and stuff, that never came into it. It was like, okay, yeah, I did some dumb stuff, but the work was important. So not only did he have that working man's drive, but he also had an intellectual drive, which actually set him apart from a lot of his peers in Ann Arbor and Detroit. And I think that that ambition and determination was kind of what kept him going. You know, he could have collapsed in so many ways, but, you know, he had the right kind of people who cared about him, like David, and other people like Chris Stein, who signed him to his Animal Records label, all the other artists who really wanted to work with him. And he then believed that it was important for him to respect those offers and that support to cut through, and that's, that's what he's done. And one of the things that's interesting about Sunday, you mentioned, you know, about Day of Rest, he said that he had originally started writing that song, and he said the lyrics, as, as he put it, he was like, it was, they were very me. They were sort of like leftist intellectual about the new economy. Mm-hmm. And Josh turned to him and said, look, man, you know, you're Iggy Pop. You're the working man's musician. And when you get home on Sunday, you're black, blue, and tired. And that really kind of changed the lyrical course of the song so that it became about, you know, surviving this kind of thing. And there's also a line at the end where it's uh, something about, you know, you know, it's, it's killing me. Yeah. And Josh said, oh, but you have to add, and you, because there are two people in this. You know, Iggy's married, Josh is married. You know, it takes two, as they say in Motown. Right. And so it's like, and he said, yeah, you're right. It's about the two of us being killed by this, you know, being exhausted and tired and then coming back through. The element of collaboration in those songs is, is fundamental, and I think it's worth pointing out that on the actual album credits, the songwriting is credited to all four members, Iggy, Dean, Josh, and Matt. It's really it's a band album. It's yeah. very much a band album because that's the way he wrote with the Stooges. You look at the songwriting credits on the first two Stooges albums, it says, written and performed by the Stooges. Right. They were a unit. They were not Iggy and three guys with attitude and guitars. It was very much a closed fist. Right. What did he say? You mentioned early on kind of just talking about him saying, like, this is maybe the end for me or kind of just, you know, well, yeah, kind of wanted to close it down. Is, he, is there a health? He seems to be he's just posing naked at first. We're kind of, of burying like the lead here. It's yeah. Like, um, he's in better health than, you know, virtually anyone his yeah, age exactly. um but you know he's he's taken a beating mm-hmm. um and one of the things that's interesting is that you know you watch him on stage now it's very much a concentrated intensity um he's not just doing wild animal dances and i think that's partly because the material calls for something more concentrated and theatrical 
there are moments where, you know, he's doing kind of the martial arts ninja stuff, but then he'll just go into like a momentary freeze, like some kind of, like something Michelangelo would have mm-hmm. sculpted. And, you know, he's, he's making a point. I think that it's less about, you know, age. And yeah, he's got to deal with that. You know, one of the things he asked his agent in the band was like, I don't want to do two nights in a row. I want to save my voice. Right. Of course, everyone ignored him. So he did two <laughs> nights in a row in Austin. He's doing, you know, two nights in a row on the East Coast, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how serious um, do you think he was? I mean, do you think he really is? He, was he really talking about this is going to be the end? I think he, he said that actually at one point during the sessions, he told Josh, dude, I reckon this is it. You know, it's like, it, maybe it's, how do you beat this? Like, how do you keep going and keep doing better at a point where, you know, he's looking, you know, he's looking at the clock. He, you know, he just, he went tick tock, tick tock, you know, everybody's doing it. And sometimes people feel, well, I got to keep doing it because that's what I'm expected to do. I think right. he realizes that there can be a point where you can just say, not only have I done my best, but there's no point in in sullying that best by right. doing something that's not up to standard. Right. You know, if you're going to go out, go out on a high. And yeah. it doesn't mean he won't keep working. It just means that this whole cycle of album tour, album tour, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. Right. Springsteen doesn't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean, couldn't you imagine him making these kinds of records with less of the stress, like less, like you say, less of the touring? Like it almost seemed like he's making its return you, to form kind of record. You can't, you can't do this kind of work with less stress. Because the the stress of creation and the stress of standards is always there. You have somebody, you know, he says, like, Josh is like a big guy with a lot of energy. You know, Iggy's like, you know, Josh towers over him, you know, by at least head and shoulders. And, you know, he's an intense guy. And so is Iggy. But I think he's intense at a... uh, at the point of maybe someone who's done what he's done right. for 50 years. Yeah, that's he, that kind he, of he can't be like Rod Stewart and just go and do a covers r- record. If yeah, you're Iggy like, Pop, I, you're not. I don't, yeah. want, I don't want to hear Iggy Pop doing Gershwin. <laughs> Actually, he would do it really, I take that back, he yeah. would do it really well. And in fact, there's one moment He does in have the that show, crooner side. Well, yeah. Oh yeah, he's a total yeah. Sinatra nut. And there's one moment in the show where he actually does, it's in my notes somewhere, when he did one of the songs from, I believe it was... Uh, might have been from the idiot. He did it sitting on a, a stool, like a Sinatra-like stool, you know, almost like a crooner, except he had no shirt and he stuck the mic in his pants. <laughs> so you, if you're getting Sinatra, you're getting it the Iggy yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking more like the way Leonard Cohen has been able to go and go and go all these years, and he is also touring a crazy amount too, which is which is interesting. But maybe is sort of these. It, I think that might also be because he got ripped off by his manager. That's true. And he, he does need a little money, money. Yeah, but he's, money. those tours have been amazing. Yeah. Well, but when Leonard comes out, he does, he's not coming out with Lust for Life. That's true. Right. One of the things that he says is a lot of what he does now, it's really to, you know, have people keep an eye on the catalog because it's been underestimated and underrated for so long. Right. You know, when he's gone, which I don't think will be soon, um, who's going to keep that alive? Right. And I think that by going back sort of going forward and back at the same time by turning to the Berlin period in these shows to go with this record, he's, you know, reminding people, hey, I know you love the Stooges. There's a whole other body of work that's been important to me and important to my uh, survival and durability. And it's not just the song that was in the ad about the uh, yeah. Carnival Cruises. Right. Right. You know, there's well, a lot There's a lot more going on there. And the last song in the show at the end of the encore is Success. Here right. comes success. 
that's like the ultimate fuck you. <laughs> you know, I survived, and I'm having a success no one can deny me. Right. Well, that, that feels like a pretty good place to maybe wrap it up. And I think the, the upshot for this might be, like, if you're an Iggy Pop fan, you might want to see him on this tour. Maybe don't expect Stooges songs, but it'll, it sounds like it'll be worth your while. You can just go home and play Funhouse really loud. <laughs> That's same, <laughs> pretty. Then, dance around the house and break shit up. It'll be <laughs> same Throw some fun. glass around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just don't fall on it. <laughs> the, David Frick, thank you so much. Thank you. And John Dolan, thank Thanks. you. Oh, and you can check out David's story in the new issue of Rolling Stone. That was Do You Want to Get High from the new Weezer record called The White Album, informally. I'm here with Andy Green. Hi. Hi, Andy. This is our reader mail segment. Oh, boy. Uh, Oh, boy. (laughs) Andy, you recently wrote about Weezer uh, Uh on the website and in uh, a recent issue of Rolling Stone. And uh, we have some feedback. All right. The first one is from a reader named Dustin Perry, or we think that's his real name. I think Weezer have been trying new things starting as far back as the Green Album, and the consensus among critics, hardcore fans, and casual listeners was that, quite simply, their late period albums were objectively not as good as Blue and Pinkerton. Some bands and artists are able to go in new directions and create music that is as good as or even better than their early stuff. Beck and Radiohead come to mind. But if a band makes a valiant attempt to try something new and the results are objectively not that great, why not return to the sound that gained them acclaim in the first place? All right, well, just as a little background to what Dustin's speaking to, you wrote about how Weezer made a very conscious attempt to kind of recreate some of their 90s sound. So what do you have to say about uh, Dustin's comment, though? Like, why not? No, I think it's a very fair point that Dustin makes, that fans want the old sound. It makes sense for a band to try and go back and recapture that. Or many fans. For many fans, yeah. But a band like Weezer is sort of in a no-win position. If they try and break new ground, as they did back in the mid-2000s, then a lot of old fans are horrified. They don't win over a, a lot of new fans. But if they go back to the old sound, oh, then they're just trying to to recapture a thing that like, like that's gone and they're evolving. That there's sort of you, you can't win. So <laughs> I think that, I, I mean I guess you could win by just making a great record, right? right? I, mean, I not, feel like that's a little a little a dark. Problem is for a group like Weezer that did two albums, then took a long break. That for so many of their old fans, they're wrapped up in the emotion of the first two records. They hear those records, they think about their own teenage years, their own angst, and it's such okay. a, it's a part of their own history. I guess it depends on your fan base. It right. is true, like bands have different levels of fans. They, well, right. they have fans, some bands have fans like, say, okay, the Grateful Dead, who we talked a little bit earlier this episode, yeah. uh, who really want them to try new things or, or want them at least to, you know, maybe right. take, you know, kind of a jazzy approach to their lives. Right. Or change things up, or yeah. you know, or they expect them to do new things on their records, like Kanye West fans, of course, expect you where? know want want him to do new things, as opposed to say you're saying Weezer fans are a little more on the yeah. more conservative end. I think a lot of Weezer fans they want to go to the concert, they want to hear "Say It Ain't So." want to to sing along to it and think about how much they love that song in high school and how it tells their own story too and it's a just pure nostalgia thing okay weezer fans if andy's wrong you can tweet at him at what's your twitter handle green andy you can come flame me on twitter it's fine but 
I'm not saying that's all Weezer fans. I'm saying that's a healthy percent of the fans are really attached to the oldest songs. And it's sort of a burden they carry around. I would say it's probably true of more casual fans, too. Sure. Right. Yes, yes. There aren't a lot of Weezer fans that are frothing at the mouth for a bold new direction for the band. Right. All right. Well, the next letter is actually from someone who kind of takes another point of view. This guy uh, named Mark C., Uh, The reason pretty much no 90s rock bands are still viable today is anything but a nostalgia act. Almost none of them are trying to do anything different. So enjoy your summer tour. Just remember that people are going to show up to hear the old stuff, not a bunch of new stuff that was specifically created to sound like the old stuff. Kind of sad that, with its last several records, Weezer has basically just become a Weezer tribute band. Wow. Well, that's a little unfair. Feels a little unfair to me. It's a little unfair, and... It's like I was saying earlier, they're kind of painted into a corner. If you just do the old songs and just do a show that's nostalgia, then you're the Pixies. And then every subsequent tour that's the same gets smaller and smaller because you've already seen it. You know, so you can't just keep doing the same old songs every tour and expect to maintain a big audience with that. But if you carry forward and have all new songs, too, that bothers some fans. It's a delicate thing to... Well, I mean, here let's let's we've had this this discussion yeah. a little bit in the office. Let yeah. let's pause for a moment. Yeah. Look at people at Rivers Cuomo stage in their lives. Like he's mm. about what forty five, yeah. something like that. Yeah. How many artists in his position at his age have made new albums with great new songs that have taken them to another level? The first, my first thought is Paul Simon, maybe Graceland, which was in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, I think it's strange to think, but he was the same age probably that Rivers is now roughly. Right. He made Graceland, and that was bold, and that was a huge comeback for One him. One of his best albums. Yeah. A- anybody else that comes to mind? It's tough. I find the 40s is a tough period for rock stars. They can do great work like their 20s, then again in like their 60s or something, huh. like Dylan or something, but often... Yeah, what was Dylan doing in his 40s? So that, that would have been the 80s for Dylan, too. The, yeah, in the 80s, he was doing Down in the Groove and Knocked Out Loaded. And well, Infidels, not bad. Infidels, I mean, probably that was a bit like, earlier, yeah. But what, the, yeah. I guess he was 42 when he did that, yeah. So you're right. right. But yeah, when he got a bit older. Probably, I would, I would place that maybe in like the, right in the middle of the pack, the top half of Dylan records. Where, I where love you, Infidels, oh yeah. Where I'm, would you put it in the... Well, I have a strange perspective on this because I'm really obsessed with the Dylan period of like 78 to 83. So I love Infidels. I love all that stuff. I love the gospel records. I love Street Legal. We're getting a little sidetracked, yeah, listeners, sidetracked. but please bear with us because yeah, I, I feel like this is worth All right, let's try to think of one more artist who has broken new ground or has made well, like original great records. I think in, in his Springsteen 40s. in his 40s did The Ghost of Tom Joad. Right. He stripped it all back after stumbling for a bit with Human Touch and with Lucky Town and kind of saved himself with Tom Joad, even though it didn't sell very well. Right. He kind of like, he, he reset. He pressed the reset yeah, button. And he, he stopped trying to write pop hits, which right. was a smart move. Right. So maybe, you know, if you're not going to make a career-defining yeah. new album, maybe you can at least press yeah. the reset button. Or if you're Eddie Vedder, you could be in Pearl Jam and put out awesome records your fans love and know it will never be as big as 10. There'll never be any right. new Jeremy on it that'll be all over the radio, but you could still do something great. And sort of the key is to not make an album on flop sweat. A lot of these bands... <laughs> They're so desperate to get back to something. They try and recreate the DNA of what was great. And you can almost you can almost taste the flop sweat when you're listening to this record. Right. This real desperate desire to go back to something that's lost. Because you can't go home again. You can't get back to that mind space when you were when you made something. Right. I think there there's lots of music as a product of a time and a place. Right. And there's just no going back there. Right. All right. Well, let's get back to a little bit of reader mail. This is from Eric the Red Hearted, the right. username. 
Mid-40s, married, and still writing songs about partying and getting high. I knew this guy would never grow up. All yeah. right. That's, well, a, that's a more benign view. It's a benign view, but he's not going to write songs about putting his kids to bed and, like, watching 60 Minutes at night. I mean, he's sort of... He wanted to go out and have new adventures that he could write songs about. I want to. I want to hear the Weezer song about binge watching Better Call Saul. <laughs> right. I think that's that's really what yeah. I so I think that he knew that his life at this moment wouldn't be good fodder for songwriting. So right. he tried so he something changed else. It up. Right. Yes. All right. Well, with that, maybe we'll wrap it up. All right. Andy Green, thanks for coming out. No problem. It was fun. And that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please leave a review or even subscribe at iTunes. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.